Failure. It's something we avoid as adults, equating it with incompetence, lack of effort or resources, bad ideas, faulty execution, and a sign that we're on the wrong track. But as little kids, we accepted it. Whether we were conscious of it or not, we knew that we were going to mess up on our way to learning something new. Our question this episode: What would it mean if we could normalize failure and talk about it more openly? Welcome to episode forty-two of How Can I Say This, where we look to build connection and community through courageous conversations. I'm your host Beth Below. Thank you so much for joining me. This episode is part two of my conversation with Sarah McVannell, who is going to share with us insights that she gained as she wrote her latest book, Flipside of Failing. You don't have to have heard episode forty-one, which was part one, to get value out of this conversation. But I highly recommend that you do take the chance to listen when you have the time. In that episode, we talked about how to recalibrate our relationship to failure, starting with the self-talk and stories that we engage in. Today, we're going to look at how to relate to failure externally, including how to have a difficult feedback conversation with someone who's on the brink of failure. Keep listening afterwards for some quick closing thoughts and your call to action. Sarah McVannell has a dynamic, engaging personality that I immediately connected with, and honestly, as I said in the first episode, it makes you kind of excited to experience failure, just so that you can learn and enjoy her perspective. Sarah helps leaders leverage the exponential power of recognition to retain top talent. She jokes that it's the only lane that pulls together her BA in psychology, her MSc in family relations, and certifications in organizational. Development, coaching, human resources, speaking, and healthcare administration. She left her senior leadership role four years ago to launch her boutique firm, Greatness Magnified, authoring a few books, vlogging, tap dancing, and getting up to no good with her hubby Mark and her kids Justin and Simone. If you want to learn more about Sarah and her book, as well as find links to the many resources that we mentioned in this episode, I invite you to visit the episode webpage at howcanisaythis.com. From there, you can also access past episodes, submit a communication question for reply in a future episode, subscribe, learn how to leave a review, and offer feedback. Hi, Sarah. Welcome back to How Can I Say This.、Um, I loved our first conversation, and so I'm super excited for us to be continuing that conversation about failure.、Oh, thanks, Beth. It, it was great. We really are taking on the very definition of failure. When you look at the dictionary definition, it is a lack of success or an inability to achieve expected outcomes. So, of course, we collectively, if you buy into that definition, who the heck would want that? Right. However, there are so many people who do want to be in service to others. We show up at work to do a good job. We raise our families so that they grow up to be wonderful human beings. We contribute to our community. And so, how might actually doing this tough work of looking at failure and exploring it in a different way, and truly leaning into and embracing that failure could have a purpose in our life? How can that be in service of others, even if I don't like doing it right for myself, or it's challenging, or it's uncomfortable for me? Yeah. I really do hope that folks go back and listen to part one because, as part of that, we talked about self-talk、mm. and some of the patterns that we fall into around failure and how we can disrupt those patterns. You offered us a, an acronym of accept.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
And now we're going to shift our conversation to those external experiences we have with failure. And that immediately made me think of childhood. Mm. And as kids, that's how we learn, right? We, mm. we learn through that trial and error and success and failure. And honestly, if we're continuing in a growth mindset, the same is true for adults. We mm -hmm. technically, we should be learning from our failure. But as an adult, our response to failure is really dramatically different than when we're kids. Mm -hmm. When we're kids, we, we totally get the fall down seven times, get up eight. Yeah. Um, as adults, we're like, yeah, 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 that's mm -hmm. good, but that can't happen to me. Yeah, it's, it's good in theory, but there, that will never be accepted in my family or in my workplace. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So what happens to us that causes mm -hmm. us to lose that vulnerability that we had as kids, mm -hmm. our, our acceptance of it just being part of the process? Well, I, I mean, I have to look at this through a recognition lens because that's that is my core area of expertise. And when we learn how to walk... Can you guess how many times on average we fall down before we successfully learn how to walk? Take a guess. Oh, I would say, I mean, first thing that comes to mind is hundreds. It's probably thousands of times. Yeah. The research um, shows it's about 2,300 yeah. times wow. that we unsuccessfully walk before we walk. <laughs> and generally for, you know, not for, perhaps for every human being on the planet, but for most people, you have somebody excitedly anticipating you walking and they clap and they are smiles and they're posting now, of course, pictures on Instagram. And, you know, <laughs> the whole moment is just, and everybody remembers how old somebody was when they learned how to walk. Nobody talks about, you know, how long it took somebody to walk. It's, it, and, and as adults, I know this for, you know, a fact, I've never seen anybody scooch into a conference that I've spoken at on their butt. So nobody gave up. They just kept going. <laughs> So, you know, we, we had people praising us despite all of the failed attempts before we got to that point of success. And um, I'm sure that people can possibly imagine how unlikely it would be if somebody praised them 2,300 times that they didn't pay all their mortgage on time or, you know, right. um, lost their job or didn't meet their deadline at work. That might, in fact, be every career deadline you've ever had. So, you know, that wouldn't be very good. But Probably it's more often the case that in school, people quickly learned that if I don't get something right, if I don't keep up with the class, if I speak too loud or I don't speak loud enough or I don't volunteer or I don't know the answer, that people judge me and look down on me for that. So we learn it in school. And then, of course, we get report cards sent home that just reinforce how we're doing in relation to other people. Um, and then, we, of course, we go into to our workplaces and for the most part, and I've worked with many, many organizations in just about every industry. And of course, I'm a survivor of, of the corporate world myself, and that we generally don't accept failure. We hide it, we shame, we blame. Uh, I mean, a perfect example is that one of the roles that I had as a senior leader before I left my previous position was being the spokesperson for the hospital. And we had a major failure. We um, had patients get sick based on the inappropriate medical intervention of one of our providers. And when we found it, it happened a second time. I was very adamant that we needed to go public. And that, you can imagine, is a pretty risky scenario of telling the public, um, we made a mistake not once but twice, and we are fixing it. This is what we're doing about it. And we find out when we're working with provincial-wide public health that multiple other organizations have the exact same thing 
However, none of them have gone public and there is no requirement that they go public. But I just argue that it's the right thing to do, that it's better that we get at the front end of the story and that we talk about how we've learned from this failure and that this will not ruin our reputation because sadly, healthcare there, you know, that's whether no matter what country you're in, it is the highest incident industry of any industry. Yeah. And so we need to be honest with the public about that. They don't want to believe it, but it's, it's, we have to be honest. It was, it definitely was a potentially career limiting move. However, what we learned from that experience is that we had one negative article and everything else was neutral to positive and that it forced everybody in the organization to get on board in terms of the safety protocols that had been missed. And also it role modeled for other people in the province that you can be honest, you can you can be transparent about your failures, and it forces you actually to be more accountable, to not repeat the same mistake. So the thing that I would suggest to our listeners is that on the surface, it may seem like an impossible thing to admit that there's a failure. However, there's countless other people who are experiencing that same failure. They're just hiding it. They feel shame, blame. What might be different? What might be better if you are the role model that bring out failure, that talk, that encourage us to talk about it at team meetings or to, uh, I'm doing a, a session with some folks in the fall. They're uh, leaders on lounges session. So in other <laughs> words, it's a leadership panel. I love the title, yes. Leader, leaders in loungers. Yeah. So I said, guys, you know, we're opening on, we're talking about recognition and how you can recognize yourself despite failure. Why don't you guys talk about your failures? <laughs> it's just like, what? <laughs> the CEO and the president of this division and, you know, the chief of that, we're going to talk about failure. And then they just went, yeah, we need to. Mm-hmm. And they began, they got so excited at the possibility of the authentic conversations that will happen for the rest of their two-day conference by the leaders on the loungers talking about what hasn't worked well in their career and the mistakes they've made and what they've learned. I mean, doesn't, I mean, wouldn't you rather work for a leader that you knew wasn't perfect, but had learned something? Yeah. And I've had the fortune of working for someone like that. And it is a true gift. Mm -hmm. And I would say she is one of the, you know, she, for me, embodied and defined what it means to be a leader because Mm -hmm. she was authentic and not just with, you know, me or anyone else that was, you know, on staff, but with committee members, you know, volunteers, people Mm -hmm. that, you know, technically, I suppose she was reporting to. Mm -hmm. And she just knew that that was part of the journey. And um, I always admired that. Beth, what's her name? Let's dedicate this podcast to her. Marsha Smith. Okay, Marsha <laughs> Smith. We're dedicating yes. this podcast to you for your awesome. Yes. Mm-hmm. Your awesomeness. Absolutely. And I have to say, as you started talking about the hospital, it also made me think of another article that I had read that talked about when a physician, you know, a surgeon, mm-hmm. if there's a mistake yeah. and and that might lead to a lawsuit. There's so much aversion to apologizing because that's tantamount to admitting guilt. Mm. And what they said was what they found, at least in this particular study, was that for like 80 percent of the patients getting the apology was enough. So Mm. that acknowledgement, I messed up, Mm -hmm. would keep them from taking a case to court. That's been replicated many times over, Beth. That's that's such a great example. And, um, And really, it's the human connection 
peace. People just want mm-hmm. you. Uh, don't treat me like a number. If there's been a mistake, I need you to tell me. Be honest with me. Answer my questions. Yes. And uh, it's the same. Same with uh, Canadian and U.S. studies show the same thing that people who apologize are, are physicians when the mistake has been made, and it may not be a mistake just on the physician's part. What we right, know right. about errors in any industry is it's almost always a series of process and people human related errors that contribute to that. So yes, you are less likely to get sued. We actually in Canada, in Ontario, we have something called the Apology Act, and it gives permission basically, or or an expectation that our providers can apologize, and that it doesn't necessarily mean an admission of guilt. So, and I talk about it in the book, because maybe, sadly, while we're still overcoming our aversion to failure, and that we we are not talking about it, maybe we do need more legislation, where we admit that things are not going well. I mean, how many times has a parent who, if you've got parents who are listening, been frustrated with a gap in the, in our educational system. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows there's no way every single need could be met by every single child. However, wouldn't you be a lot less angry and hot under the collar if they said, you know, you're right. We absolutely don't have enough fill in the blank. Yeah. It Your child does deserve that. Um, I, I wish that it was within my power to make it happen. What do you think is possible? And that's the question, right? You're, you know, your your podcast around asking different questions, asking better questions is, so what is possible or where could we go from here or what might be available? What's a resource or, or some knowledge that we have already have available? There are different questions we can ask when we don't resist failure mm-hmm. and when instead we accept that it's sadly part of the landscape of every context yeah. that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Absolutely. And I love that Canada has that law. That's I had not heard that. So that's very uh, forward thinking. And it helps to, um, in its own way, uh, give permission for empathy and vulnerability. Well, and it came out of failures in the system. It came out of yeah. Canadians saying, listen, we're paying for this publicly funded healthcare system. You're making mistakes. What the heck? It came out of critical incidents where it took years being dragged through court and no good resolution for anybody. So mm-hmm. that's a perfect example where the Apology Act and other legislation that we have governing not just healthcare but many things in in Canada and I'm sure in the U.S. has come out of failure. So yeah. we d- we actually don't need to look that hard for lessons. It's it's everywhere. It's just the things that are still not working. It's probably because we're not actually facing it head on and looking at it from its truth. Mm-hmm. You know, you shared something with me interestingly as a musician. You learned through your musical training about having to get comfortable and embrace your talent and your skill mm-hmm. and that y- you showed up differently on the stage. And now as a speaker, how much easier it is to take the stage than probably most people. I mean, I think probably your listeners would love to hear about your, <laughs> you know, what you learned as a musician and how it transferred. Yeah, it was so interesting. I, I had... Um my business coach for many years uh, came and saw me speak. And my niche at that time was introversion. And so mm-hmm. he, as a kind of raging extrovert, mm-hmm. had this impression, along with many people, that introverts aren't necessarily comfortable on the stage, mm-hmm. right? They don't want to be in the spotlight and, and that sort of thing. And he said, you seem comfortable. You know, what's up with that? <laughs> and And I said, well, I think it's my training as a musician. You know, I spent years terrified (laughs) frequently Mm -hmm. um, because I was a clarinetist and you are being judged. 
You have variables such as temperature, your read, you know how you're feeling physically that day in terms of your breathing. You know, like nerves affects your breathing, and we know that for speaking as well. But I think it's even more present when you're playing an instrument, where you know your breath is required to power mm-hmm. what's happening、um, in a very different and dynamic way. You have something that you've memorized, and you're in front of an audience that has an expectation of perfection. Basically,、mm. you squeak, you miss a note, you you have a lapse in memory.、Uh, there's not much leeway there. You know, you can't get away with that、um, at a certain point, and because nobody's going to buy a CD that has missed notes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, and you certainly won't get hired for anything if you make any mistake. So it's that. Relentless drive for perfection,、mm. and that's very stressful.、Mm-hmm. So I feel like when I now when I get up on stage without an instrument in my hand,、mm-hmm. there's so much more grace. <laughs> you know,、mm-hmm. it's it, there's so much more room for humanity, for failure, for me to say, and I have said like, okay, where was I going with that? Or,、mm-hmm. or oh, I I need to you know remember my point here or. You know, whatever it is, it it it's like it's okay, and、mm-hmm. and sometimes that's you know often because they say that you know audiences give you a lot of grace because they're like, well, it's I'm just glad it's not me up there, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think we、yeah. as speakers need to remember that that the audiences are, are by and large friendly; they are not、mm-hmm. hostile. They don't want to see you fail.、Mm-hmm. They want to learn something,、mm-hmm. and so there's much more of a sense instead of like in the music thing of them.、Uh, Of feeling like you're in a judgment spotlight, instead, when you're speaking, at least this is how I have a mindset of it. They want me to succeed.、Mm-hmm. You know, they want this to be worth their time. So to me, it just makes it much more easier. It just makes it easier to be human, and and it makes it easier to say, you know, if I trip over my words, if I say something silly, it's all recoverable. It's all、mm-hmm. good. I just own it、mm-hmm. and move on. And and don't make a big deal about it, right? Yep. You just say, "Oops, moving on." You know. Yeah, or make a joke out of it, and you're make a and joke. You're probably、yep. more human and relatable anyway because you've, exactly. you've not delivered the perfect speech. It's just、yeah. like this is this is my excuse for not having a beach body because imagine if I went with my tight abs on stage, people would perhaps be paying attention to how perfect <laughs> my body was. So now instead, I'm a size ten. Exactly. And people are like, yeah, she's like me. Yeah. yeah. But you know, in all seriousness,、yep. though, I think that you know your story is a beautiful example to how we could all do that same work of looking back in our memory. What is the context where I had to be so perfect, and what did it cost me?、Mm-hmm. How was it more difficult than it needed to be, and what is actually what what choices have I made consciously or unconsciously to shift into a different context that allowed me to not have to be perfect? Now, some people there is a small subsection of people who really do want extreme precision that that actually. Fuels them. They love that.、Yes. They want. They constantly want to strive for excellence. And then once they reach excellence, it's like infinite excellence, you know. And that's that's great. That's why we have some of the folks that we have who are just the most talented musicians or、mm-hmm. sports heroes and so forth. 
Although if you dig into their stories, they do talk about all the failures they had along the way. Yes. Uh, One of the quotes that I have right here, always up on my desk, interestingly, a year before I started writing this book, so maybe Michael Jordan spoke to me through this quote. It's, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I failed over and over and over again in my life, and that's why I succeed. Mm -hmm. So for the folks listening, I'm curious, even when you reached a certain level of excellence, what did you have to do or experience to, you know, and you can, and you had failures, you had obstacles in the process. You got over it then and look, look where you wound up for one thing. And let's take that one step further. You chose to move away from that for a reason. There's a reason why you're not still working for that company, for that boss, playing that musical instrument, doing that type of dance. That extreme level of expectation or perfection was too exhausting, frustrating, not a good fit for you. You moved away from it. So, you know, why would you continue to move towards that level of intensity, for lack of a better word, um, because it didn't work for you then. So (laughs) why don't we lean into failure Mm -hmm. and be failure resilient and let that actually lead to greater success because you don't have to be there. So unless you've consciously chosen we are going to be the top organization in these sorts of things. And I am never going to make this type of mistake. You know, if that's your jam, you have to be those ex- extremist perfectionist. Hey, you're probably not listening to this podcast, but you know, <laughs> good on you. Yeah. Like, and the world needs you and the world needs you. The world needs you. Somebody's got to run countries. Somebody's got to, you know, like invent, perform the, most, the surgery, perform the surgery. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Right. Would you want right. a brain surgeon who's like, eh, you know what? I'd rather golf than, you know, study the yeah. journals. Yeah. No, probably not. You want the best of the best. So yeah. I think we can um, see how we naturally move away and we're repelled and have in our past from those extreme situations of perfection and where there is no failure acceptance. Yeah. So that's, you know, I think we just need to, we need to plant that seed that folks are already on that journey mm-hmm. of failure resilience. Mm-hmm. We may, maybe are just more consciously navigating those waters. Yeah. Well, let's shift for just a second. I want to ask you about, you know, what it seems like in some ways, culturally, failure has started to become a little bit more mainstream. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically of someplace like Facebook, who mm. popularized this approach and this mantra of move fast and break things, mm-hmm. which to me is like another way of saying, you know, fail early, fail often. Mm-hmm. And then other startups and other people started embracing that kind of mantra. And it just in my quick research, I see people who say, you know, great, great mantra and others who say, yeah, that's, we're, that's dead. You know, we're, mm-hmm. that, that, that doesn't work or something. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that kind of move fast and break things approach mm-hmm. for an organizational culture and what needs to be considered when being, you know, that open to failure as an organization? Mm. Well, you know, I, I agree with you. There's lots of pockets where this is failure is not the F word. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got failcon now. So Silicon Valley has embraced this. Let's, let's talk about failure and the benefit of it. They have a thing called the museum of failure <laughs> where all of these failed products, um, and it's a, it's a rotating museum. Um, 
And, and so we want to, we want to learn about that particular product that was so unsafe or that, that toy that nobody was interested in, or that type of popcorn that was, you know, why would anybody have wanted bear flavored popcorn? So, you know, there's all these examples of um, products that haven't gone well. Um, So, you know, I, I think you're right. I think we're starting to see pockets of this and, Given how influential the tech industry is in our culture, where we're almost all of us have social media and, and we're very tuned into what's going on, perhaps their voice has a greater voice over other industries, rightly or wrongly. I don't, that's not for me to say. So if they're willing to fail fast and, and just try to move forward, how can we do that as well? And we're obviously all benefiting from their rapid cycles of failure and, you know, improvement. What we don't usually see, though, are all of the startups that don't make it. So there is also a challenge to that move fast, break things, you know, like just just go for go for broke. Who cares? Like what damage you leave in your path? Um, Another great podcast is by Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn. You know, he he interviews startup founders and sometimes there's actually sometimes it's a really good thing because that by fa- those failed businesses they go on to produce the you know they create the amazing companies and almost every very famous tech startup tech app a social media product there's been multiple failed businesses along the way and some of the people that he interviews will say listen i wasn't very nice or i i lost my wife i mean elon musk has been divorced 3 times mm. Mm-hmm. Two of those times were from the same person. And he's sleeping on the roof of Tesla, and Tesla isn't rated very well at the moment. So right. they're breaking a lot, but they may, in fact, completely break their business if they don't figure out how to stop moving so fast and, and fix a few things because nobody wants a, a really sexy car that is constantly in the shop. So it's a balance. It's a balance. It's not reckless breaking of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where that where you have to have a tolerance and a respect for failure just like we have to be able to say we're sorry if we mess up with a patient and then be able to say what we're doing about it. Because otherwise you get shrapnel of other kind. You get people damage mm-hmm. in the end, mm-hmm. right? Relationships or employees lose their job and founders lose their funding and, in, and there's mental health challenges that come with, with challenges of failure and so forth. So there is a definitely a balance And I think that we need to be aware of how our culture is transparent about acknowledging it and improving from it. And that's where the companies like Toyota that have a lean, continuous improvement philosophy, where any employee, it doesn't matter what level they are at, they don't need permission from leadership, stop the line. And they've been doing this since the beginning of Toyota, stop the line and the entire production line stops, which is a just in time production line. So this means there's a lot of ripple effect, negative ripple effect. That is the way in which they fix things. And so they call at Toyota, they call problems or jewels, but that is a completely permeated concept, deeply embedded within the entire culture of Toyota. If we can't move fast, break things, if only one division believes in it and everybody else isn't okay with it, or my boss is okay with it, but then my I'm bullied by somebody in my department that believes that everything I, I do has to be tight. So that's, I guess, kind of like some closing advice for folks yeah. um, is to think about where's the readiness for failure. There, people will put it in the show notes, a, a quiz that people can do to gauge that for themselves as well as for their organization. Mm-hmm. And then I would say when it comes, instead of move fast, break things as in fail, 
constantly be failing. Figure out how failure resilient your context is. Be super failure resilient within yourself and respect your context going to take some time. Yeah. Yeah. So that there needs to be the right kind of container mm-hmm. um, and environment and culture for move fast and break things to manifest itself in a productive way as opposed to like a tornado yes. that's moving through. And there's the movement again. There's the movement. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So yeah. that's great advice. I want to close really quickly um, to bring this down to an interpersonal level, because I know one of the hardest pieces of feedback that we can give someone is that they failed at something. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. thinking particularly in the workplace, but this can be, you know, on a personal level as well, that they failed or somehow didn't meet expectations. And sometimes that person knows it, and other times they don't realize it, you know. What quick tips do you have for the person on the giving and on the receiving end of that kind of feedback around failure? Um, your your advice from the other podcasts around stories, I think, is so important. So we need to be very clear about what story we're telling ourselves. So if let's say you're telling an employee that they're not performing, have you told yourself a story, this person's a write off, and they're never going to be able to do this job that they are abusing the system? Or, you know, what stories do you have? Because if your intention is to harm them, to force them out of a job to that's not really feedback that is that that's that you're on a mission you're on a crusade there so we got to be really honest with ourselves about what our intention is and the story is interwoven with that and if your intention is to do good then you can use some of the things that we know from the therapy world such as um repair attempts so let's say you begin to give somebody feedback and they're not taking it very well you could quickly say something like you know I see that I've upset you from this feedback and I want you to know that that was absolutely not my intention. I actually believe that you do A and B and C exceptionally well. I'm, I only want to give you feedback about this one thing. And, and by the way, one thing at a time, Yes. whether it's parenting, whether, <laughs> you know, conversations in the workplace, absolutely. Yeah, one thing at a time. Otherwise we get emotionally flooded. So that's one of the things I think that we can probably do a better job at whether it's about failure or anything else related to feedback, is that if things are going off the rail, we don't have to shut down, close off, stonewall is what they call it in the therapy world. Instead, it's just it's it's making that that attempt to clarify what your intention is, because if it's good to start off with, it's still good in the middle of that conversation. And you don't own how the other person reacts. Right. So for those of us people pleasers out there, the a successful conversation does not mean everybody walks away feeling as good as they did walking in. It's that you did the best job you could for that person, for the other people depending on you, for the organization. You've not, if somebody feels harmed, you did not deliberately harm them. You've done your best to let them know what other resources, give them some time, some space, what, you know, whatever you feel in the moment needs to happen. Some people are feedback superheroes. It's just some of us have a lot more experience than others. So keep practicing. Yeah, nice. And then if you're on the receiving end, what's like one thing that you can do to kind of self-manage how you're feeling? Mm -hmm. Well, certainly if you've done the work and you have a failure resilient mindset, then probably you can, you're, you're going to be asking, what do I need to learn from this? 
this is a shock to me. I didn't know, or this is something that I didn't realize I need to work on. So what I might ask, you know, so what would that look like? If let's say in a year from now, we were, we were having a different conversation and you felt that I, I was meeting expectations. What would that look like? So get Mm -hmm. clarity about what the expected behavior is or the expected outcome or deliverable Uh, because sometimes it's just lack of role clarity or being on a different page. And if you ask that question, it now becomes a shared responsibility. It's not just you tell me I have to improve. It is, I need your help to understand. I would be doing it already if I knew how Mm -hmm. to do it. Now, of course, you do have some people who are underperforming. And so I'm not saying that this is for everybody. But, you know, if we're really putting ourselves in the shoes of the receiver, I have to assume that that receiver genuinely wants to do a good job. Maybe they weren't aware Maybe they were aware, but they thought that they were improving enough. Mm -hmm. What I found, I'm sure you found the same thing, Beth, is that a lot of people have gone for a very long time without feedback, without honest feedback, without fulsome feedback, without any feedback. So sometimes we're playing catch up and that is okay that you can manage one bite of feedback at a time and then you give one bite of feedback at a time. And it's okay to talk about things that aren't going well. We just don't want the person to feel like a failure. It's just that there was this situation is not working. It's all in your intention. Yeah, great distinction. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for all of your wisdom and generosity in what you've shared here. Mm -hmm. And how can people learn more about you and your work and your book? Mm. Well, we'd love for them to come on over to greatnessmagnified.com. We've got resources that they could also tag on the flip side of failing to the end of that uh, website address. And they can link to a quiz and some downloadable resources. Of course, the store on my website, people can buy the book. You can Google the name of the book, Flip Side of Failing. And it's available in all major retailers. Of course, in, it's coming out on audio soon and it's available electronically. So whatever your medium of choice and reach out to me on social media. It is me who responds. It's not a bot. So, you know, friend me, connect with me on LinkedIn, follow my, you know, Instagram, and let's have a conversation about this and continue to break down the the walls around failure so that it is no longer the other F word. Yeah. Beautifully said. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate it. And this has been a wonderful conversation. So thanks. Thank you, Beth. Until Sarah mentioned it, I hadn't thought about how much we not only tolerate failure when we're little kids, but how much it's actually praised. And that's because it's recognized that taking those first steps, literally when we're kids, and of course, later metaphorically, when we're adults, it takes courage. It's a risk and it's how we learn. I'm reminded of my own attempts over the past six months at learning to draw mandalas. I see other people doing it and think, oh, I should be able to do that. Not because I'm arrogant or think it's easy or because I'm a natural artist, because I'm not, but because my brain can see how they're structured and I think, okay, I can draw circles, I can draw lines and triangles and curves and make them all look good together. Well, when I first tried, it was a disaster. My circle looked like an egg, and since the circle holds the layers, it was doomed from the start. And so I kept trying. I tried a few more times and didn't make much progress. And here's the thing. I almost said to myself, I can't do this. I'll never be able to draw a good circle, and therefore I won't be able to make anything decent. So I almost gave up. But then I thought, 
oh yeah, YouTube. <laughs> There must be a way. So I looked up some YouTube videos, and I realized, oh, I can trace around a cup or use a compass and a ruler to make a perfect circle and draw straight lines. For some reason, I had it in my head that everybody was just making these beautiful works of art without any、um, tools. And some people do, but、um, I needed tools, so I practiced some more, and I made a few more ugly mandalas, and then I finally made one that I was proud of. I'd probably made a dozen or so of failing attempts before I made one that felt like it was worth keeping. I practiced that some more, and I kept increasing my confidence. And then I decided to try drawing freehand without any tools, and of course, those were terrible at first too. And then I kept at it, and I got better. It reminded me what it feels like to be incompetent at something and work my way through it. As adults, we avoid feeling incompetent, but that's where our opportunities for growth come from. We know this intellectually. It's our ego. It's our self-talk. It's the way we talk about failure to others that gets in the way. So here's my call to action. Think of something that you've wanted to do that's new to you. It might be drawing mandalas or drawing people or flowers, playing the guitar, dancing, writing poetry or fiction, speaking a foreign language, learning to ski, or cooking your favorite ethnic food. Release any ideas that you have about it that it's going to be easy. Or that you're going to be great at it right away because you're great at everything that you try. Accept instead that you're going to mess up probably a lot before you feel competent in your new skill. Accept that you might feel silly or that others might witness your mistakes. Accept that you might be flat out bad at it for a while. Remind yourself why you're doing it and commit to working through the discomfort. And to remind yourself where you started, save evidence of your progress, whether that's photos, a video, or samples of your work. And finally, release any ego voices that tell you that you have to be the best at whatever it is you're doing. Give yourself credit for taking a risk and following your desire. The process is absolutely going to influence your life in other unrelated areas. I know that even if I never draw another mandala again, the journey from making those ugly, chaotic blobs on sketch paper to creating pieces that I'm proud to share. That retaught me again what it feels like to move through the discomfort of incompetence, and I'll remember that when I'm in that situation again, and I'll have more trust in myself that I can handle it. And I suspect the same is true for you. And in the spirit of sharing that particular journey, I'm going to post a few of my mandalas from the ugly to the not so ugly on the episode webpage. I invite you to share your progress on whatever you decide to attempt with your family and friends, and maybe even invite them to learn along with you. There's comfort in going through the discomfort together. This is Beth Bilo, and you've been listening to How Can I Say This. Our podcast producer is Paul Messing, and our theme music is by Brett Anderson. Thanks for joining me and Sarah today for this conversation, and I invite you to take what you've learned here and use it to speak up, speak out, and speak courageously. 